The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. So good morning. Welcome to Berean Bible Church. Today we are going to be... uh, I know a lot of times David is, teaches pretty detailed and heavy stuff, and sometimes I get up here and throw a curveball and do some weird stuff. <laughs> this morning it's going to be a little more, um, a little more practical, and this is something that I have spoken of before, but it's something that we can never be reminded of too much. I know I can't, so maybe I'm just speaking to myself. David may call what I'm doing today meddling rather than teaching, so, but that's what we're doing. Um, the topic is one that I had heard spoken of at a conference mm, close to 20 years ago now. But it stuck with me as an important topic that every Christian or, well, really every human should probably remember and put into practice. It's something that we encounter in ourselves and others probably on a daily basis if we really think about it. Now what I'm talking about is the importance of knowing how to distinguish between the principle of a matter and the methods of reaching or putting the principle into action. Now, by principle, I mean, of course, not the person who sits behind the desk at a high school. Um, I'm speaking about those things that would be considered standards of living, guidelines, rules, maybe even laws. And now when I speak of methods, I'm referring to the ways that we as people will employ to fulfill or reach the principle's goals. Principles can originate from various places in life. For the Christian, of course, we gain a lot of our principles from God's Word. Others, we may gain from things as simple as common sense. The struggle we find is that sadly not everyone seems to understand the difference between principles versus the method. And they will focus on the method, which will will and can cause all kinds of strife and division amongst people. Many of our churches across the land today contain many individuals who are quarrelsome and divisive. And they do so a lot of times under the guise of just being zealous for God. You see, there can be many methods that are acceptable and successful in reaching a principal's goal. But some zealous people are quick to force their own preferred method upon the conscience of another as if it is the only true and acceptable method, especially if it is to them a fresh and exciting new understanding. Many people, when they get new light shed on some topic, they'll get overly excited and become quick to want to go and attempt to shine that light or really maybe shove that light up on others. And oftentimes they do so in a less than loving manner. This can cause divisive feelings in the body of Christ and his church, which Paul warns against by saying, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Philippians 2, 1-4. As we know, any of you who spend time on social media or the internet, it's become quite a battleground for doctrinal fights. I've pretty much had to stay out of a lot of Facebook groups just because I'm too tempted to want to put in my two cents. Yeah, somebody on the internet's wrong. I got to fix them. Hold on. 
Anyway, people throw around words with no forethought of love, no consideration for others. It just becomes the impersonal lobbying of words and abuses at others. We often add our own condescending attitudes, and more often than not, we've also added false assumptions about the other person. When it, discuss, when it comes to discussing things with others, for a greater majority of people, what is needed is a major boost in love and wisdom. Wisdom learns to see the issue, to see what the actual foundational point is, over against what is extraneous or only seemingly connected. Folly, on the other hand, will latch onto what is extraneous and forgets the actual heart of the issue. This is what will be the thrust of our discussion today. As wisdom learns to see the issue and foundational point, or in other words, the principle of the matter, it is folly that latches onto the extraneous parts of the issue, or in other words, the methods. Here is a humorous story that I pulled from the original message that I had heard those years ago. Picture, if you would, or look at the screen. (laughs) Picture, if you would, a four-lane highway with two lanes going one way and two lanes going the opposite way. Now, let us think of this highway as life. We have two lanes heading towards eternal life and two lanes heading towards the lake of fire. Now, on the highway, there are four cars. Let's say two Chevys and two Fords. I don't care what your preference is, but two Chevys, two Fords. On the one side of the highway, we have one Chevy and one Ford driving neck and neck heading towards eternal life. All the while they're driving, They're making faces at each other, beeping, yelling, cursing at each other, criticizing each other over their driving styles, their choice of car, whatever. Just really going at it over all their differences. Now, in the midst of this, on the opposite side, the opposite two lanes, the other Ford and Chevy, driving neck and neck, pass by, going the opposite way, heading towards the lake of fire. As the two sets sets of cars pass by each other, the driver of each of the Fords on opposite roads heading in opposite directions, make eye contact and wave. Hey, brother, solidarity. You're driving a Ford to the lake of fire. I'm driving a Ford to eternal life. We have a lot in common. This bozo in the Chevy next to me, I can't believe he thinks what he thinks. Now, this is how folly operates. It cannot keep a sense of perspective. And even as Christians, we will live in this folly by choosing to align and separate ourselves from others for totally ridiculous reasons. Whereas we in the church are to seek and strive to maintain unity, but that comes with wisdom that many are lacking. We are told, I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Ephesians 4. The spirit was given to the body of believers, has given to the body this unity. It does not come from us. We cannot cause it. We cannot generate it. But we are told to maintain it. It doesn't come automatically and often requires work on our part. Just like what David has been preaching in recent months about abiding. It is something we are called to do and yet something we must strive to work at doing. We should be eager to maintain unity, seeking to avoid any of the sins that will cause it to be disrupted. We should approach others with all humility and gentleness. This is pretty much the opposite of many of the discussions we see dividing the body these days, lacking in love that we are commanded also to pursue. He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. John 13. 
I think one of the things that today's Christian is severely lacking in is self-denial and a true love for the body of Christ. The Bible often speaks of denying ourselves and putting others ahead of us. Yet even those in the church often strive for self-gratification over self-denial. And that is part of the folly that is part of our topic today. So while we may have found and practiced a method that works excellent for us, we must realize that not all things are limited to a one-size-fits-all approach. Two people going to the same church may have two totally different methods for obeying and following through with an underlying principle of Scripture. Now, understand I'm not talking about any foundational biblical truth or differing opinions on deep theological doctrines. That's not the topic. It's more about differing approaches to some doctrines. It's not about differing approaches to doctrines, but things more practical. We'll get into some additional examples for the moment, but here's a quick one just to start you off. Now, within the same church, you may have one mother who chooses to put her young child in a separate children's church or nursery class during the corporate worship time, while you may have another one who chooses to have her child in with her in the corporate worship. The principle of worshiping God and raising children can be accomplished by both methods, regardless of which method you might feel is superior. As one body in Christ, we need to be understanding of this and treat others with respect and honor they deserve as fellow believers. Only once we truly grasp the difference between principles and methods, we should be able to be less divisive with those who have a different method than we do. It is one thing to share wisdom and offer suggestions on things or to work together in discussions, while it is a whole other thing when we condemn others for not doing it our way. Just because they drive a Chevy and you drive a Ford, it does not make us at odds. Now, an ideologue is someone who basically is a blind follower of something, someone, or some type of agenda. An ideologue cannot understand the distinction between methods and principles. It gets lost on them. While this is the case, oftentimes an ideologue will grab onto a perfectly acceptable method, though they often miss the point of what they are doing and why. Many of us tend to be more of an ideologue than we may grasp, and that is what we must flush out into the light in order to deal with it. Let me give you a quick example of what I mean. Let's look at the issue of education. Now, the former church that we have uh, came from, they run a, a Christian classical school. And many of the families in the congregation sent their children to that school. However, within the congregation, there was also a large number of parents who homeschooled their children. And then there were also families that had their children in other schools, whether other Christian schools or just other general state-run public schools. The principle is that parents are given charge and authority to see that the teaching and training to the teaching and training of their children. To accomplish that principle, there are many different methods at their disposal. It is when someone chooses one of the many methods and declares it to be the best and becomes critical of those who choose differently that the folly of stressing the method instead of the principle comes into play. <clears throat> if we have a grasp on the difference between methods and principles, we will have to admit that in almost everything, there can be good and bad alternatives. For instance, there are great Christian schools, but also there are horrible Christian schools too. Likewise, there are some great homeschools, but then there are some that turn out to be pretty horrible, too. A dedicated ideologue homeschooler, though, would cringe, argue, and deny that there is ever such a thing as a bad homeschool, just like a Christian school ideologue might also defend their position as the best option, regardless. Any such negative language against their view is looked at as an attack on them personally. Their method is right, and there is no weakness in it, 
and they will fight to keep their opinion and make sure to let everyone else know that they are wrong. If we say there are bad marriages, this is not an attack on marriage in general. If we say there is such a thing as a bad cooking, this is not an attack on food in general. There are only These are only true if you are an ideologue. Only if you believe that all Fords, without distinction, and regardless of the direction they are going, are always good. That is the folly of it. Ideologues cannot make these distinctions, and they stick to their position and defend them, and do so rarely in love and consideration towards the methods of others. The scriptures are full of exhortations on how brotherly love is a central attribute to those claiming to be within the body of Christ. For by grace given to you, I say for everyone, to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we may have members, many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. If we are truly loving our brother, who we chose, who, who has chosen to take a different method than us on something, we will not think of ourselves as being righter or bright or better than them, and therefore not look down on them for using their lawful method. Continuing on in verses 9 through 10, Paul says, Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, let one an- love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Now, you get a verse like this and you open the door, some people are going to be quick to run to it and say, See, it says to abhor what is evil. So many Christians will defend their view against others because they believe that their view is holding fast to what is good, while the other is somewhat evil to be abhorred. In most cases, this is how an ideologue will think. Next time you start to bicker with the brother or sister in Christ, stop and think, am I fighting against some clear and open violation of Scripture, some clear sin, or am I dealing simply with a method? We are to defend the truth, yes, but a method is not a concrete truth or the only way something could or should be accomplished. Let's take an example that has been an issue in the past ages that we could easily see as folly. When Jesus went to preach his grand sermon that we call the Beatitudes, it tells us this. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. In Matthew 24, we find, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. And then in Matthew 26, we see at the last, at that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. What we have here are three clear examples that while he was teaching, the Lord sat. So what are we to make of this? Is this a clear understanding biblical guideline that the proper method of preaching and teaching should be sitting down? Some may say yes. The principle, though, is to preach and teach. The method is not limited to sitting. Now, this may be an extreme case, but this is the folly that can happen when someone focuses on the method instead of the underlying principle. This is the folly of what can happen if we let our own selfish ambitions take charge and we do not rein them in and use wisdom instead. James reminds us, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have better jealousy and selfish ambition, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, 
in your hearts. Do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be a disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Oftentimes when we come to deal with someone in the church body, we come at them with one of two extremes. In one extreme, we approach them in disagreement, basically looking down upon them as the less wise or weaker brother from us. And we may therefore constantly attack their methods, even making, even maybe thinking that we are helping them in doing this. The other extreme would be the approach to approach them in a manner that is a warped view of love, in that we pretend that we must never challenge or admonish them or ever bring up a discussion or issue of truth. Both of these extremes we have to work into not falling into. To leave others alone when they are, there is actually an issue and not just a difference in methods is not what we should do. Being accountable to one another is not the topic we're discussing here, though. We are to abhor and challenge what is truly evil while holding fast to what is good, while loving one another and always seeking to outdo them in showing honor. Can you imagine a church that this is truly going on in and everyone who is actually fighting to see who can show more love and honor to one another? When we are brought into the family of God, God receives us in as we are. However, he does not then just leave us to our own devices, but he continues to work with us to mold us into the person that we should be. This work is not automatic. It is, not a, it is a lifelong conforming to the gospel lifestyle, and we must take an active role. Everyone who is received in is received in at different stages. We were talking about this this morning in the thing, in our prayer meeting. And the workings of the Spirit may be very different in one person as compared to the next. We must remember this, for the Spirit does not bring us in and then make us all immediately mature and understanding of all things on the same level. One method God frequently uses to help mold us is by the loving guidance and admonition of another member of the body. However, truly loving admonition is just that, loving. It's a loving challenge and a guidance to the path or method without ignoring the fact that various different methods are valid. If we hold an extreme view that we are not to challenge anyone, then we are breaking that unity by not being used by Yahweh as we should. Instead, be a blessing as we are told. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Now, as touched upon earlier, as humans in general, but even more as Christians, when someone, when something may be all of a sudden revealed to us and becomes clear as day to us, the temptation may be to run off and begin shoving it in the face of all of those around us as if everyone else needs to conform to this thing that the Lord has brought to your life in that moment. We may not always stop and think of the many practical applications of the truth that we have learned. We see its application to our situation and we apply it one way. Then in folly, may think that this is the way and the only way for application of this. So we seek to exhort others to conform to only our method of application. This can and does often lead to disunity and division. We must resist this temptation, accepting brothers where they are in their walk 
and understanding and seek unity and love in all things. Again, it is one thing if the topic is more someone misapplying a principle or a sin. It's another thing if it's just a preferred method to reach a principle. God accepts us. We are justified, brought into his family, and we are likewise to accept those others in the body who may feel different, who may feel different in some way from us. However, just as God does not leave us alone, we are to lovingly get involved in the lives of those around us and be used to help with the wisdom that we may have, but never in an unloving or method-demeaning way. The way we live our lives with others and the manner in which we represent our Christian faith and profession used to be known as our conversation. That's the old, old English word. Per the more modern dictionaries, this definition, though, has been labeled as obsolete. It's an obsolete usage. Now, the reason I tell you that, though, is because the quote and a couple quotes I have in here from uh, Jeremiah Burroughs are from the 16th century when that word did mean that. So we may think of it more as a witness or our, just our lifestyle. So take that in mind when we uh, read that. Um, <clears throat> he says, Christians who profess profess the gospel must have great care for their conversation, their lifestyle. They must not satisfy themselves with what is inward in their minds or in their affections, but look to their own to their conversation. You think of hope, at least, that through you think or hope, at least, that through the gospel there has been conversion wrought in you. Why? After the Lord has wrought conversion, he expects that you will be careful of your conversations before men. You have knowledge You speak well. You have some stirrings of the heart that you have felt in hearing the word and the preaching of the gospel. But now, look to your conversations and know that there is a bond laid upon you more than ever before to look to your conversations. So he's talking about look to the way you live. Now you claim to be a Christian. It should show. This is where theology proper meets theology practical. This is kind of what Dave has been preaching on lately. Recall back to the recent message on what it means to abide in Christ and the work required of the individual. Think back to his dealings with some of those who hold the view that when one becomes a Christian, they are immediately changed and some things, some sins become impossible for them to do. There are two extremes we must stay away from. The one that says at conversion we are immediately made perfect and unable to fall prey to certain problems and sins and the view that after conversion, it matters not how we live, for we are saved no matter what. How we live, how we interact, and how we love, it all matters. For instance, we know that the Bible gives us a clear principle to study and know God's Word. Normally, this time of year, there's always a message about next year, read the Bible during a year. Now, it's not just because of David's harping on this every year that we should be considering reading the scriptures. He harps on it every year because it is a principle of scripture. But there are many ways to accomplish this principle. As we all should know by now, on the church website we have printable plans that can be followed, making it easy to get you through the Bible in one year with only about 15 to 20 minutes of reading a day. These plans are recommended by many in this church who have used it, but in no way should they be promoted as the best, preferred, or only method. The church should never divide between the plan users and the plan refusers. There are many methods that can be used to read through the Bible. Actually, in truth, the Bible doesn't actually command us to read through it entirely in a year. It just shows us that we should know it and study it. Reading through it in a year is a good practice. 
not mandatory, but the principle is read and know the Word of God. If someone were to come in and start contentions with someone else on how long it should take each day or how often reading should be done or which translation should be used or which reading method preferences or when during the day you should read, etc., then the follower would be crossing the line into the methods. We can see how this type of scenario is pretty clear to show us that folly, the folly that can happen when considering methods over principles. But some scenarios may not appear as clear to us and require a bit more understanding and wisdom. We should always err on the side of love and not be too strict. The Bible commands us to strive for like-mindedness and unity. And this comes about by loving one another while seeking to approach each other in humility to discuss things of a doctrinal matter. It means avoiding being obnoxious, cantankerous, or losing perspective when it comes to these discussions. Paul exhorts the church in this way. Only let your manner of life, your conversation, be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Philippians 1.27 And we are told in 1 John 1.7 that if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Something David recently preached on. So if we are both walking in the same light, regardless of if that is a Ford or a Chevy, we should both be moving closer towards God as well as closer in our unity with each other. Jeremiah Burroughs, who I quoted a minute ago, went on to state, If you would manifest that God has wrought any true saving knowledge, any wisdom in you to save your souls, then know that God requires that you should show your good conversation and that with meekness and wisdom, you should have a care of your conversation, conversations, both in respect of men, God, and saints. The Apostle Peter likewise speaks of our conversation or our manner of conduct by saying, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your formal ignorance, but as you, as he who has called you is holy, you also he called to in all your, oh, you also be holy in all your conduct. <clears throat> is this a daily conscious thought and goal of ours that we seek to live by? Are we seeking to make our conduct holy as he is holy? If not, why not? It's a tough question, but one we need to ask. If we lived accordingly, we would stand out in this society for sure. In doing this, we are making the truth of the gospel known, not only in our own lives, but to the world around us. Maybe you're familiar with the old saying, preach the gospel and at all times, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. The idea is that the gospel work within us should be reflected to those around us just by our manner of living. Again from Burroughs, if you are not careful of your conversations, God will lose witnesses to the truth. Now, a witness is not a thing that is kept within. A man, a man cannot be a witness by keeping things within his own thoughts and heart. He must manifest something to witness. Now, the Lord makes use of the lives of his saints to be his witness in the world to stand and witness to his truth, whereas others will think when the gospel is preached that it is but a mere notion or imagination and that there is no reality in what is preached. No, says God, look here upon the conversation of those who have believed the gospel. Do you not see that they witness what there is, that there is a reality in those things of the gospel? Look what a change my gospel has made upon their lives and conversations. Those who were proud before, Look how humble they are. Those who were forward before, 
Look how meek they are. These are my witnesses. We should look back each day and seek to determine if our day was a witness for or a witness against the Lord, either among the world as well as among the body of Christ. And we should seek to adjust it accordingly. One of the ways we help each other within the body of the church is to be held accountable to one another in the body of Christ. If along the way I see a brother falling into bad things like mistreating his wife or something or falling into some kind of basic, falling into some form of a basic duty or my duty in love should be to walk alongside him and call him out on those things. Look, brother, I think we need to talk about this. That is showing love and that is our brotherly duty. This should be an acceptable behavior, not only in being offered from us, but in being received by us from others. We are not to avoid doing this just to keep the peace, to keep the peace, and we should not shun this just because of our pride. We must keep the peace based on God's terms, not based on our own selfish desires. A lot of divisions come from, come from the way in which we handle the situations too. There may be a fairly clear-cut answer in scripture, but we may muck it up with the mishandling of the person. For instance, let's look at this section in Romans 14. As for the one who is weak in the faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. So here we have scriptural proof that vegetables are for weak people. No, but here is a dispute that was going on in Rome and Paul is addressing it. But if someone today comes along and grabs this letter and runs to his friends and says, see, Paul says, since you eat vegetables, you're the weaker brother. You're the weak one, pal. See, I'm right, you're wrong. Then we find that we've misdealt the person. We often use the scripture to prove something that in fact may be indeed able to be proven while ignoring what the scripture says about handling it. We can prove who the weaker brother is But this verse tells us specifically not to use this verse to do so. So while we know that there is a right and a wrong side of an issue, and we may be able to prove which which side is right and which side is wrong from the Scriptures, it doesn't mean that we necessarily ought to, at least not without using much wisdom. Just because you can win the argument doesn't mean you can win the person. I've met plenty of people, and I've surely been one myself, who can win an argument while losing the person. The issue is, even if you are right and we have a solid scriptural evidence on our side, it is not always in what we know, but how we use it with others. It is also important to remember, and humbling when we do remember, that we are image bearers of Yahweh. Davis taught often on this in the past, and how we are to be the light and image of Yahweh in the world. That is our created purpose, and that is especially the purpose of those who are in Christ. We are told, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Romans 8, and then just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. 1 Corinthians 15, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Colossians 3. So again, our manner of living puts forth a witness that will either be one that bears a true image of Yahweh in Christ or one that bears a false image. Going back to a little more Jeremiah Burroughs, and God delights to have his image held forth in the world that men may behold something of the glory of his image. 
But how can the world see the image of God? They cannot see it in your hearts, but God would have it conspicuous. Therefore, have a care of your conversation that in your conversations you may hold forth the image of God to the world. A man who has an image of his father or dear friend will not hang that picture in a smoky hole or behind a chimney or a door, but put it in some conspicuous place. So we should hold forth the image of God in a conspicuous way. It should appear in our lives and our conversations. So maybe on a good on, on occasion it would be a good practice for us all to stop, look, and ask ourselves what kind of image of Yahweh we are portraying to the people around us. If the answers reveal a response that is less than satisfactory, then let the work begin. Of course, other topics outside of clear scriptural mandates will likewise require wisdom and temperance and handling, as we've mentioned before. On a related topic is just touched on, there's the issue of diet and health. We have healthy hints every week, so it's something that's frequently on our mind. We have many people here who study these issues, and we discover many different health and dietary approaches, and the Internet is full of even more differing opinions. The one thing we should know by now is that in this realm of study, there is not a one-diet-fits-all solution. The principle is to seek to be healthy. The methods are too many to list. Everyone is different. Everyone's bodies and tolerances are different. What works for one person may not have that effect on others. For some, vegetarianism is the way. For others, being vegan. For others, maybe the keto diet. Vegetarians may be this way because they find studies that show that meat is bad for you. Yet then, they are likewise as many opposing this type of study and say that it's not. Some people may choose to be vegan or vegetarian due to a conviction of the treatment of animals. But that conviction is just that, a conviction. A conviction is often a reason for choosing one method over another. It is not typically an actual principle since it can often be subjective. This is just not an issue that is justified in berating others or breaking unity over. They are not principles. They are methods. Now, back to discussing theology proper. The study of apologetics and being able to aptly defend the faith is an important trait as long as it is tempered with wisdom. You can be a one-man demolition squad for truth and win arguments while at the same time offending everyone within a 50-mile radius, causing them to have nothing to do with you, the gospel, or the Christian faith. Again, winning the argument and winning the, per- the people are very different things. Paul warns about this in Colossians. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, meekness, humility, meekness, kindness. I'm saying all these words backwards. Long-suffering, <clears throat> bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Yes, you may win arguments, but without tender mercies, kindness, humility, patience, and wisdom, you give evidence that you do not truly possess or fully understand what the scriptures are telling you, and you've become a bad witness to the, for the Lord to those around you. <clears throat> Looking back to Paul and the early verses of instruction in Romans, there was a situation, and Paul was telling them how to handle the situation in love and for the sake of the gospel message. And we can also glean wisdom in that, when we consider our own situation. 
Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. This applies in and out of the church in our discussions. This should be something that the church leaders also seek to handle within the congregations. As controversies arise in a church, the parties on both sides of the discussion need to be managed under this idea. Both sides have to bear with each other peaceably in patience and love until an end is reached. Otherwise, it will turn into a situation that breaks the peace and unity of the body. One important thing everyone needs to realize, it is possible that your view is wrong. Or at a minimum, at least it's not 100% correct. After all, someone in most any discussion has to be an error in some partial way of some sort. But if both sides refuse to acknowledge this, that there may be more to the story than they currently understand, then unity and truth are nearly impossible to achieve. For people who are ideologues, they tend to be talking and arguing all the time. They have to stay busy and keep their sound going because if they pause, the silence may cause them to reflect and see that what they are doing is not very good. What is needed is a willingness to stop and say, you know, brother, you answer to God and I pray for you and support you. I don't think that maybe that's a great Christian school you've enrolled your kids in. I don't think they promote a good worldview and they may have areas of compromise. So I don't think that's necessarily the wisest choice. But I pray for you and your family and I believe that you are honoring God in seeking to honor God in this. When you make a decision and take that kind of approach and you know when to apply the brakes to your mouth, it can be the first step in wisdom and a step away from being meddlesome. Too often we want to be meddlesome. We want to be the Lord in someone else's life. We say, this person is not answering to me properly. I wouldn't have done it that way if they were my child. Well, it's time to realize that it's not your child. The one whose child it is, they are answerable to God. You may be thinking they are making a mistake. So what should you do? What is the quickest way to be able to communicate that? By loving them, receiving them, and not being quarrelsome like this. Now here's a quick rundown of a few things that are important to remember when such discussions appear to be necessary. First, methods are not bad. When discussing principles and methods, it is not to say we should just observe the principles without employing any kind of method. Methods are a necessity. You have to pick one to accomplish most anything. Remember, it is important that you understand what the difference is between a principle and a method. What is it you are trying to do? I am heading towards eternal life. I am driving there in my Ford. If my Ford breaks down, I am going to walk. I know where I am going and I always know the direction I am headed. I always have an eye on the ball. I am always in the game. So the method is not bad, it is, a necess- it is necessary, but it may differ from person to person. Secondly, what is settled in history and what is settled in principle are two different things. Cultivate humility of mind. You might win an abstract argument, yet in real life the historical outcome may be very different from how you envisioned it would be. Third, in controversy, if you guess or judge the motives of another, Assume that you are almost always wrong. Not when you judge what they did, but when you attribute cause or purpose to why they did it. When you assume the motives for something someone else has done, you are almost certainly wrong. This one thing is the cause of all kinds of divisions. 
People would rather think the worst and divide over it than to really deal with the issue thoroughly and through loving discourse. This type of thing needs to be avoided. Fourth, God requires you to be a steward of everything he gives. This includes how well you avoid controversy as well as how you conduct yourself within a controversy when it arises. You may find yourself in the middle of a controversy. Just remember, in God's sovereignty, he has given you this controversy to handle just like he gives you everything else that he has in life. So you must be a good steward of it. Just like being a good steward elsewhere, you need to show a good return in the controversy, showing where some profit was gained or something was learned from it. Fifth, it is wrong to give offense, and it is wrong to take offense. Now, when I say take offense, I'm not saying it is wrong to get hurt. I am saying it is wrong to be resentful, bitter, to dwell on it, or to use it to become a resentful person towards those who upset you. Obviously, there are things we can do emotionally, physically, or spiritually to wound one another. And it is not wrong to be wounded. It becomes a sin when we let that wound become infected. Just like in life, when you get such a wound, it must be kept clean and dressed so that it does not get infected. Forgiveness and love are requirements for the Christian life. We are told, and whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father, who also, also who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Matthew 11, Mark 11. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins again against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. How often do we do that? Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Colossians 3. In controversy, people are quick to say outrageous things about you, even to the point of making up things. Controversies that come from ignoring the distinctions between what is a principle and what is simply a method to get there, that can be the result of sin. It is a spiritual problem and it is perpetuated by a certain kind of individual that the Lord calls fools and blind. Let's consider another controversy in Scripture, which, while it is not an actual controversy we make and apply to us, it does display the same type of mentality that we find afflicting some in the church today. From Matthew 23, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guys, guides, straining out, a, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. We should not focus on the smaller nuances of issues, but we should be more concerned with the weightier things, the actual principles. 
rather than the various methods and nuances that people take to get there. The neglect of this distinction can be a sin. There are many conservative Christians who split from relations or even from churches in a way that is offensive to God over things like I've mentioned, such as schooling methodologies or types of attire and worship or types of worship in general. Any number of off-the-wall things that uptight people can use to cause controversy. The principle is to worship God and hear his word properly expounded. If there is a grievous error in those realms, then it may be indeed time to consider separating on those root principles. But people will split up over many other minor issues too quickly these days as they search out to find what pleases them and what fulfills their desires in considering various methods. When it comes down to people saying something like, this is what God wants you to wear, or anything along that line, and it is referring to a method and not a principle, that is where the issue is. It is true, God does want you to wear one thing, tender mercies. So after wearing tender mercies, can you go off and be a part of a subculture that dresses one way or another? Sure, put on tender mercies and go do what you want. Go do, as Augustine said, love God and do as you please. Now, we may see that and think that Augustine is advocating a do-what-you-want-anything-goes mentality, but that is not the case. As people of faith, a faith in and through the God of Scriptures, we choose to adhere to guidelines and limitations that are part of that faith. When we truly love God, then we are binding ourselves to what that means and how that plays out in our lives. That will lead us into a lifestyle centered on love and guided by scriptural principles, which will shape and direct us in what we do and will not lead us to go to do anything that goes against that lifestyle. If we are truly living in a lifestyle of love to God, that will also bring about a practice of loving others, which should bring us to where we need to be even amidst controversies like we were discussing. Remember, the world is a big place made up of a multitude of different peoples. Why can't we just move around it without insisting that everyone has to dress the same way, act the same way, drive the same way, eat the same food, or drink the same drinks? Why do we not act like we're Trinitarians? A Trinitarian culture allows us to have a set yet broad and recognizable culture which contains true variation and diversity within it, which is appreciated and loved. In a more Unitarian culture... It is a top-down, everyone in lockstep with one another, and that is what is usually true of a Unitarian Muslim culture. There are many subcultures of Christians who don't have this distinction, yet they behave like Unitarians. Everyone should do it my way. Everyone should dress their daughters like I do. Everyone should speak like me. Everyone should worship like me. This is not the Christian faith. An important piece of advice to keep in mind is we should never react but always act. We act on things, but should avoid reacting to the other person's things. Those of a Unitarian mind tend to react when faced with an issue, which leads to a tightening of a grip on things, which leads to more rigid methods. There are many things in today's pop culture that make their way into our schools and churches. There is a modern, this modern mentality of diversity for the sake of diversity, doing whatever you want regardless of how strange it is. It is a lifestyle of no discipline and one that acknowledges no cultural norms or boundaries at all. So, with such a frenzy of activity, people are scattering into fragmentation and so people react to that. The response is, if you do not want to be this postmodern, fragmented kid with orange hair, strange tattoos, and a total ignorance on where the waist of the pants should go, 
you should adhere to our tight set of methods as the only way. Rather than get to the root issue is the reaction to deal with the methods that comes about from it. So they end up with methods that swing to the opposite extreme and produce the super clean-cut, perfectly combed hair, nerdy, over-polite kid that is not allowed to watch TV and is only able to listen to classical music and who pull their pants up to their chest. What kind of method is it going to take to produce a kid who knows that the belt goes in the middle? Okay, while examples of this principle versus method idea can be almost endless, let's turn back to education as an example. The principle is parents must see that their children are taught or teach their children. The methods can be homeschooling, Christian schools, private schools, and yes, even government public schools. This is where most Christians in conservative and especially reformed circles may gasp. Oddly, there are parents who firmly believe in homeschooling only and will do so from K through 12. But, when they have, but then they have no issue in sending their children to a typical secular college after that. They may stand up and boldly proclaim it is, to be, it is a sin to send your child to public school for 10th grade or whatever. But then they may not even give a second thought to the mentality of that mentality when it comes to college, as if something magical happens between the summers of 12 and grade 13. Now, for me personally, I don't support public government education. Do I oppose status education? Absolutely. But I want to oppose it on principle and not by just drawing some arbitrary line against it that no one can understand. The principle is children of a young age, K through whatever, are vulnerable. And when lied to, cannot always understand what is happening. But when a Christian child has received a strong Christian education and is trained well in how to reason from a Christian worldview and they can do more damage in the 13th grade than what was being done to them, then by all means, send them to engage the culture. For someone to stand up and just proclaim it as a sin to associate with public education because it is secular and not be able to articulate precise reasons for saying so, they are failing to understand the principle and simply revolting against a method. The principle is you do not leave your children vulnerable. When they are in their early years, they are vulnerable and must be brought up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Then, after being brought up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, at some point you can feel fine knowing they can handle themselves and send them forth to engage the culture and know that they are better prepared to affect it more than it affects them. One pastor related a story of his son's experience in college. The son had educate, was educated K-12 through in a classical Christian school and started college courses also in a Christian college. He then decided to go to the local university at the same time. After about a half a semester at the local university, he told his dad, Dad, I was prepared to fight these unbelievers, but it's not like a real fight. It's more like tearing apart a stress doll. He relayed how he had come to an English comp teacher. He had an English comp teacher who had the whole class watch this existentialist movie. Now, those not familiar with the term existentialism, it is one of those philosophical terms that describes the belief that the starting point of someone's philosophy must be their own personal experience. Your own personal experiences are what makes your choices authentic. So the teacher had them watch this film, and at the point, and the point of the film was that you are to do whatever you feel like doing. Don't let anyone tell you what to do. Defy authority, live for yourself, and submit to no one. Then the teacher told them to write a three-page paper interacting with the movie. So the son wrote one paragraph saying, I used to be a conservative and pretty uptight, 
things upset me about the ways things were going. But then I learned from this movie that you shouldn't let others tell you what to do, and I don't feel like writing a three-page paper. <laughs> he stapled it to two blank pages and turned it in. So he is in school, a secular college, and it is not a sin as some may proclaim. He was there doing damage to their silly system. He was fulfilling the principle. He was not vulnerable or defenseless. The main principle is that parents must ensure that their children are taught and equipped with a strong worldview in order that they are protected from what will be thrown at them. The methods employed to reach that principle may vary, as we've said, homeschool, computer education, good Christian schools, private schools, public schools. In the end, the focus should, of course, be the underlying principle of education. Let's quickly blow through some other quick issues that have popped up. Principle, mothers are to feed their children. Methods, scheduled feeding or not, bottle feeding or not, goes on. Principle, we should be good stewards of our body. Method, working out or not, different types of working, of methods. Uh, eating junk food or not, juicing or not. There's all kinds of different health messages, as we say. A principle, children are a blessing from the Lord. Method, birth control or not, planned pregnancy or not, natural childbirth or not, hospitals or midwives. Principle, modesty is a Christian virtue. Method. To wear makeup or not, jewelry or not, bathing suits or not, the list goes on. While the principles should steer you clear of caking on makeup and jewelry and wearing provocative clothing, it likewise should not be used as a justification for swinging to the extreme opposite and looking unkept, drab, dull, sloppy, and homely. Hopefully you can see by now the differences between the root principle and the various methods people employ to get there. Churches or people who fight or even go as far as to split fellowship over methods are just wrong. And people who go as far from one extreme to the other are missing the point. We need to stop, look, and realize just how bound we are by the pressures of our day. We need to stop seeking to strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. While looking out at others, while looking out at others, our temptation is to reason like this. If they were really committed, they would employ my method. My method is the preferred method of choice amongst everyone I know that was sold out and dedicated. We have to first understand the difference in methods and principles, and we have to focus on the principle. We may differ greatly on the method, but it is amazing how many things will work themselves out if we keep the focus and emphasis strictly on the principle. So if you are fully convinced of an issue, that is a good thing. But if it is an occasion for troubling others for whom Christ died, then you should keep your convictions to yourself. At the same time, know your own heart. We have to pray for love or peace, uh, love of peace, and strive for humility of mind. And we have to weigh, we have to weigh these things. We have to know that tithing mint and dill and cumin is a good thing. Jesus did not condemn that. Being scrupulous in detail is a good thing. Choosing your own methods is a good thing. One last story as we close, touching back on the idea of wrong assumptions about the motivations of others. People may be quick to assume that an older family with only a couple of kids, or maybe even no kids, that they must have had some conviction for a positive view of birth control, or they chose to only have a couple rather than allowing God to bless them with more. If you don't mind your own business or choose to assume the worst, you may say, oh, she must be a liberal. That could be way off the mark. Maybe that was all that God gave them. Maybe they wanted more, but did not have them. It could be that the husband has to comfort his wife nightly because she can't have children. 
And then some busybody in church comes up to her in church and says, I can't believe you and your husband aren't having any children. Are you a career woman or what? The woman barely makes it to her car before bursting into tears. And you, helpful Christian, chased her there. It is amazing what we do to each other at times. We really need to stop and think before we speak. Are we speaking in love and humility? Do we seek to find the principles of the matter rather than focusing on the methods? Are we seeking to build one another up or strike them down? In all instances, we, if we feel we must speak up, may we learn to think before we speak. May we always seek to use biblical wisdom and not to be led by our own understanding. May we always seek to focus on principles and not methods. And may we always strive to love one another with brotherly affection and to outdo one another in showing honor. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much. Thank you so much for the wisdom of your word. We just pray, Lord, that you would help change us all, that we would all be a better witness for you, be an image bearer, that we would all seek the love and unity that you have required. Help us, Lord, in our weaknesses. Help us to honor you by honoring others. Help us just to be the person that you would have us to be, to shun self-denial, to shun to shun our self-desires to raise ourselves up or to be right. Help us to have more in self-denial and humility. We thank you so much for these things. Amen.